environmental history, and environmentalism. But you are a human, you're engaged in the world around you, you're studying things, and we always tell students, you know, we study history to understand the past and to avoid the mistakes in the future. Well, then do it. A roundtable discussion about the relationship between scholarship and environmental advocacy. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 43 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Environmental history has been both friend and foe to environmentalism. Historians can provide important context for understanding contemporary environmental issues, but they can also offer a critique of environmentalism that could undermine the political and social goals of activists. This is the subject of a recent review essay that I wrote for Acadiensis, and I'll link to that essay on our show notes. In that essay, I ask... Are environmental historians environmentalists? How should environmental scholarship relate to environmental activism? Should advocacy for environmental issues shape historical scholarship on the environment? Can history always inform contemporary environmental issues? I felt that scholars in the field in Canada hadn't devoted very much attention to these important questions. So, I met up with some of the members of the Toronto Environmental History Network to ask them what they thought. I'm Jonathan McQuarrie, PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. David Zoldberg, doctoral candidate at York University. Jessica Van Horsen, lecturer at York University. Alexander Hall, postdoc at Nottingham University in the UK. Andrew Watson, PhD candidate in the Department of History at York. And we are all sitting here, gathered uh, in a circle in a living room somewhere in the city of Toronto, uh, face-to-face. We don't often do roundtable discussions on the podcast where everyone is face-to-face, but we are doing that today because this is an official meeting of the Toronto Environmental History Network. Uh, And Jonathan, you're the organizer uh, for the uh, TEHN, so uh, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about uh, what the organization is all about before we get into the topic at hand for uh, today's conversation. Yeah, so the Toronto Environmental History Network is a long-running and somewhat informal group where people can gather, academics, uh, people are involved in public history, that sort of thing, and they can give papers and get feedback on their papers and a sort of friendly atmosphere we 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 eat and we talk and 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 sort of a it's a really nice setting to talk about your paper uh before that big conference or that big publication date or the big chapter or whatever so it's it's uh yeah it's and we sort of talk about we can do canadian history and american north american european mexican we've had before spans all sorts of geographic ranges and time periods so and this is for just about anybody right graduate students faculty absolutely graduate students we've had uh we've had experienced professors we've had new professors grad students uh we've had people outside of academia give talks all sorts of things so yeah and you guys meet about once a month yeah it's a, dinner. a monthly di- monthly meeting we, we 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 have a nice host at someone's house they provide a lovely meal everyone brings a little something and it's just a really congenial atmosphere to talk about uh, environmental history that's great. And of course, we want our listeners out there, if anybody's out in the greater Toronto area, or uh, what do we now call it, the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, uh, who has a, a paper or a chapter of a dissertation uh, or an article draft that you're working on and you're looking for some feedback and trying to make connections to other environmental historians in the region, uh, you can take a look at the show notes for this episode and we'll put the contact information for the Toronto Environmental History Network up there and how you can get in touch with Jonathan. 
to get your paper into the mix. But the issue at hand today that we want to talk about uh, is the relationship between environmental history scholarship and environmental advocacy. <clears throat> Let me just set this up for a little bit here. If we look at review essays um, about the state of the field of environmental history, particularly in, in North America, they often begin by mentioning that the field emerged in the late 1960s, early 1970s in the United States, usually in some kind of relationship to the emergence of modern environmentalism and the environmental movement in the U.S. Um, and I think this is probably true to some degree in terms of early articles and books that came out in the period. Uh, but in 1983, John Opie published uh, an essay in Environmental Review in which he uh, kind of warned environmental historians or raised the issue of uh, what he called the specter of environmental advocacy in environmental history scholarship, um, raising the issue of, of how closely environmental historians uh, were aligned with particular um, issues for contemporary environmental activists. So what I wanted to do was get a sense on this roundtable today of the degree to which that's uh, still the case in environmental history scholarship, um, whether or not we think there should be a kind of firewall between advocacy and scholarship, or whether we think scholarship should be informed by advocacy, and get into some of those questions. And maybe to get us started, I want to ask the group here um, if they can name a book or a scholar who, in environmental history, who has influenced your own thinking about your own personal environmental practice or relationship to nature. Maybe I'll start with Andrew. Sure. Uh, it, it's tough to a certain extent because uh, once, you've, once you've read enough of the scholarship, it's sometimes hard to figure out where your inspirations come from. Uh, but I, I'd have to say that um, Brian Donahue's Reclaiming the Commons is probably the book that uh, for, resonated for me the most and really helped shape uh, at least my dissertation research, uh, mostly because it does, this, it does this really interesting job of taking uh, you know, contemporary concerns uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and, and demonstrating the usefulness and uh, the importance of applying history and historic context to understanding the, the sort of the issues around, in, in, in his book in particular, uh, about uh, bringing food to the urban context, suburbanization, land use, and this kind of thing. Uh, and so this, this for me, I, I wouldn't say it, it served as a model, but it served as a, as a useful way for me to think about how I wanted my dissertation to have an, have an impact. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I'm not going to force you, John. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah, so, um, yeah, same, similar. It's, it is tricky, but uh, Mark Fiji's Irrigated Eden really stands out for me. It's this brilliant book about the Snake River Valley in Idaho. And he, he, he begins with a sort of story about him just going and driving through the area and just thinking about the landscape, the irrigation, uh, and what that sort of talks tells him about in uh, the relationship between people and environment, the sort of unexpected uh, consequences of developing landscapes uh, using irrigation. You know, he, he goes through all these really interesting stories about unexpected weeds showing up after the irrigation and rodents. Uh, he 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 really tries to impress that there's this idea of humans and nature and this sort of hybrid. Uh, relationship with each other where they just sort of mm -hmm. feed off each other and circle with each other and to me that sort of really speaks to uh, really one of the, the central issues of environmental history is just really trying to think about what our relationship with human relationship to the environment is when we when we do practice agriculture and really when we do any number of different things and it's just this beautifully stated 
piece of lots of great stories about how that relationship plays out in Idaho. And I, yeah. What about for you, David? I'm inclined to th- uh, <clears throat> think that it was probably E.A. Wrigley's continuity chance and change that had the biggest influence on me. Uh, current readers, I mean, it's been rewritten as Energy in the English Industrial Revolution, but in which the ways he lays out uh, that the fundamental transition to a modern world is a lot more energy use, and that especially makes us have to think of what would it mean to try to go back to something that's entirely local, entirely based upon plant resources, and the real difficulties and the limitations placed in that world on our, our lifestyles, and it forces us to get into more complex thought of how we'd have to organize society, particularly now that we're dealing with a world of 7 billion people instead of 1 billion. See, my pick is also related to energy. Mine would be Richard White's Organic Machine, uh, which is an environmental history of the Columbia River, a very short book for anybody who hasn't read it and wants to go out and pick up a new interesting book in environmental history that might weigh, might change the way you think about your own relationship to nature. But he, he takes a, a topic <clears throat> that you might think would involve just talking about hydroelectricity or fishing, but situates it, situates it within, I guess, uh, metabolic relationships and uses that as a way of understanding environmental change. And that, for myself, has, has kind of shaped the way I think about my own relationship to the environment as what uh, pieces of energy do I consume, what waste products uh, do I produce as a result of the transformation of that energy, whether it's the food that I eat and the garbage that I produce or the waste that I expunge into our sewage system. Um, and so that book, I think, helped not just my work as a, as a historian, but also as a, an everyday person interacting with uh, nature around him. Jessica. Jessica. I've, listening to all of these great books, it just, I, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I had oh, in my okay. mind we originally. We won't say what you're Well, I was going to say <laughs> The Human Web by McNeil McNeil because it's such a fabulous book and shows us how the world has always been a global world. We, you know, we live in this era of globalization, but we have always been a globalized world. Um, but Joy Parr's Sensing Changes has hmm. been just, it's so tremendous, and I think it's a landmark in environmental history for one um, for one com- complete study of how the human senses detect change and adapt to changing in, in their environments. Um, because so often we have corporate histories or government histories of these massive events and we forget they affect real people on the ground. And how do these people reconcile with these changes in the land? Mm-hmm. Oh, not to mention <laughs> another book. <laughs> but uh, yes, and so it was just really influential to me, even the way that she shaped her analysis, how each chapter is devoted to a particular sense, a human sense, and how that is altered according to industrial change. And it's just such an inspiration to look at the world differently, look at the past differently. And Alex? Yeah, um, it's kind of a tough question. And I guess thinking about kind of what we're going on to discuss as well and some of the advocacy issues in, in that come up for environmental historians um, I'm going to say um, Harriet Ripbow's Dawn of Green um, because uh, having read it, uh, it it's a hi- history of um, water works and management projects in the Lake District in the north of England um, in mainly in the 19th century um, and I read it having read other histories of this region and these, these similar issues, either focused on the industrial revolution aspects of the period or um, on class issues in, in the period. And then sort of reading another account of this, of this episode, but with the sort of environment at the centre of it, still playing on the class and still bringing the people in, um, was really sort of to see how the same story looks different when you put different actors in the centre, I think, for me. And also the issue of having of uh, what have often been 
pitched as early environmental groups and early environmental movements and to sort of be treated um, quite critically and look at look at what they were actually advocating and fighting for and does that relate to similar movements or later movements? Can we compare them or not? Well, that's a really good selection of books. I mean, right there, I'm happy with this episode, giving listeners uh, <laughs> a good good list of uh, summer, summer books to read, maybe. Um, well, let's get into it then. If environmental history as a uh, scholarly discipline begins in and around the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s and in some ways was aligned with modern environmentalism, is that still true today? Does environmental advocacy, from your perspective, still influence environmental history scholarship? I think it's, uh, it's often uh, the starting point for a lot of people, is their, their inspiration, their, the, the way they gravitate towards environmental history, once they actually realize that there is such a thing as environmental history. <laughs> uh, when they, they tend to gravitate towards it is because they do have some of these concerns, I think, about the relationship between humans and the natural. It's not always the case, perhaps, but in a, in a lot of cases, um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kernel that gets people going, and it doesn't necessarily uh, dictate the way that the rest of the research project or the rest of the scholarship uh, goes in terms of the writing, but in terms of the way people start, I think they approach, they, they begin with uh, concerns about the human nature relationship. Yeah, I think if you, you were to take kind of a, a, a big picture survey and just maybe like survey articles coming out or main research topics of, of, of scholars over time, you could probably quite closely match them to issues within the news and the popular domain. I think there'd probably be quite a you know, direct correlation or anything, but quite a close reflection, and it, it's hard to disentangle whether that's people studying because it's, it's topical and, or, or because they're coming from a kind of advocacy, that was some, an issue that they were involved with. So I think if you take a survey, I'm pretty sure there'd be quite a close reflective sort of relationship there. Yeah, I tried to go back and look at some of the first articles that were published in Environmental Review in its first decade. <clears throat> and I think it does, to some extent, reflect what were contemporary issues. There were articles about air pollution, um, wilderness preservation, uh, chemical pesticide use, um, and then, of course, there were a handful of articles that were not necessarily easily targeted toward a particular environmental issue that was contemporary to the period. But it would be an interesting study to sort of follow that through the 80s into the 90s to see whether or not the scholarship aligned with contemporary issues. Did people start writing about acid rain toward the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s? How much do environmental historians talk about climate history in the early 21st century? Um, they probably do it a fair bit. I mean, one place you do see it has been the upchurch in energy history or at least energy history, yes. as something self-consciously different. Uh, I notice that somewhat, uh, as someone who thinks of myself as an energy historian, but that mm -hmm. you don't, you didn't see that much until maybe 2009, 2010, that was so self-consciously energy and trying to align people who dealt with different energy sources talking to each other. I mean, it might be a product of, um, yeah. I mean, gas prices are higher now than they were in the, in the 90s, but also in ways in which our, our Canadian discourse, we just think about energy a lot more as most of the rest of the world seems to. Yeah, and in the Canadian field, there are more dissertations now that are being researched on energy history, tar sands history, in Canadian history, which is interesting, right? I do think that's probably a reflection of current concerns over um, uh, carbon emissions and global warming, because, of course, 
you know, oil has been harvested from Canadian, within Canadian boundaries for over a hundred years, and Alberta has a long history of oil exploitation. So there's, it wasn't it wasn't that Canadians weren't active exporters of oil as an energy resource, but that the environmental concern has triggered a historical interest. But for for me, that's kind of can quite often be a, a positive, healthy sign. Like that, it's kind of shows that there's a. A, a strong connection or, or some kind of real connection between the discipline and maybe the fabled outside world mm-hmm. and that you know <laughs> people are responding you I mean it might be as cynical as they're responding because that's where funding regimes are kind of shifting <laughs> towards and they, they know if they put certain topics in a grant proposal they'll get funded that might be the cynical kind of side of it but it might it might be you know gen, genuinely that the discipline is, is sort of connected to day-to-day issues and maybe not in a kind of as close to activism in that kind of sense of a direct sort of radical element, but maybe just reflecting general society's concerns at the time, which I think is healthy, really. It's funny. I almost came at it from the opposite direction. It's the more I've studied environmental history, I didn't actually come into it particularly aligned with environmentalism. environmentalism. I mean, I was aware of them, but I don't think it really defined what I did too much. But then the more environmental history do, the more I became aware of agriculture, not as just some nice natural landscape I fly over or drive through or whatever, but actually as a as sort of a constructed artifact and as sort of the relationship between people and, and the environment and the, and the consequences of that, both good and bad, it, it, it sort of perhaps inadvertently, I'm not sure how many historians said, go out, go forth and be an environmentalist, environmentalist young man, but I think as you read more and more about it, it, it it's a little difficult to distance yourself so neatly from environmentalist causes, mm-hmm. right? Because you become more aware of them, the context, the way they develop them. So yeah, for me, it was almost a little bit the reverse of starting kind of wishy-washing environmentalism and then getting more so as you, as you uh, pursue environmental history more and more. So one interesting case study that came up as I was thinking about this was <clears throat> the writing of William Cronin and the responses to Nature's Metropolis in the early 90s. And in some of the reviews of that book and the reviews of his essay in Uncommon Ground, The Trouble with Wilderness, which will be familiar to almost all the listeners of this podcast, or if not, it will be after they finish listening to this episode. Um, The responses to both those books show, uh, I think, two sides of the same coin for environmental historians in terms of the relationship between scholarship and advocacy. There was a pretty scathing review of Nature's Metropolis um, that was published that argued that Cronin was uh, far too aligned with environmental advocacy, that he was putting an environmentalist's perspective on urban history and the history of the American West, and that the review even uh, refers to it as a Birkenstocky or Birkenstock <laughs> interpretation of history, um, and so um, the, so that's that's one example I think of environmental historians um, being criticized for not having um, uh, the necessary uh, uh, distance for objectivity from their subject of study. Then he publishes the Trouble of Wilderness, uh, and. Uh, there's a series of essays in response to that that were published in um, Environmental History, the journal. And Samuel Hayes criticizes William Cronin uh, for uh, challenging the wilderness movement uh, and talking about wilderness as a social construction. And most of his critique is on the basis that um, Hayes himself was uh, directly involved in wilderness advocacy um, and that Cronin uh, wasn't and that his perspective 
was uh, at, was was flawed because he was not himself uh, an advocate. Interesting. It, it strikes me that like uh, that the fact that environmentalism has become uh, is no longer. Uh, Sort of countercultural that has become mainstream. Mm. Uh, I suspect that this this uh, has something to do with the way that uh, environmental historians tend not to 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 gravitate towards the same kind of uh, overtly environmentalist kind of histories necessarily, because we've sort of been tasked. Environmental historians have, have been tasked with uh, doing a more nuanced job of teasing out the relationship between humans and the natural world. That we're not just uh, we're not just responsible for for advocating for a more responsible relationship. We're actually tasked with that, with doing history that includes the environment, and that doesn't always have to be about advocacy. And so I think maybe there's a bit of a reaction uh, to the fact that the, the environmental the, the, in mainstream society environmentalism isn't uh, isn't really all that contentious, and so environmental historians have to do a more detailed or nuanced job of their. I mean, it's also probably the, the case that we're coming into our historians and like the nature of the academy, we come at it from a fairly different approach than a lot of advocates. I mean, advocacy and people get inclined to causes, often there's an immediate emotional connection, mm-hmm. and that things that are fairly emotional quickly attract a lot more. Uh, wilderness preservation is one. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to get a cause for wilderness preservation that is eminently visible than for something like cl- climate change, which is not. Uh, and which is a lot more complicated and is difficult to attend. Whereas coming from the academy, we're supposed to understand what are the relationships, how does this work, and to give a much more evidence, evidence-based, complicated approach, which when it comes to recommending policy, and let's not forget, I mean, Wrigley is used to argue in favor of nuclear energy. A lot of people have used it as an example of Britain probably needs nuclear energy, which aligns against a fair bit of, of advocacy and that we end up in a the, in the more complicated place because we're coming at it with much more detailed evidence. Okay, Jess, what do you think? Environmental history, <laughs> should it be more informed by environmental advocacy or should scholars seek greater critical distance from environmental advocacy to achieve some kind of objectivity? I think um, scholars are human. And perhaps having—it's uh, radical idea. <laughs> yeah. It's a radical idea, I know. But I wonder as well is what we're talking about now from Opie until the present day. I wonder if there's been a generational shift, and Cronin's work has maybe been caught up in this. Mm-hmm. That you know, my work on asbestos, in my mind, has direct um, links to the Alberta tar sands, and mm-hmm. the the oil industry in Canada now has ties to the history of the asbestos industry in Canada. Um, and from Opie in the early 80s saying we need to separate these things to John McNeil in the early 2000s in Drums, Lampposts, and Environmental History, uh, another thing to add to the reading list, saying the most urgent duty of environmental history is to abandon the shelter of ivory towers for the blood-spattered arena of public discourse and the dangerous task of infiltrating the corridors of power. Like, he's throwing down the gauntlet there, and you don't have to do, well, I'm studying this, so I'm going to lobby the government on this exactly. But you are a human, you're engaged in the world around you, you're studying things, and we always tell students, you know, we study history to understand the past and to avoid the mistakes in the future. Well, then do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that um, this, this ivory tower mentality where we have to be objective, we have to be impartial and inhuman to some degree. <laughs> Um, 
does frustrate me. It doesn't mean that you have to um, just write about environmentalism or these sorts of issues, but you are informed by the world around you, and I don't know if you can escape what's happening. It's sort of an interesting debate. A lot of my research kind of sits broadly between environmental history and the history of science. Mm -hmm. So kind of to look at the two disciplines distinctly and separately, um, the history of science has a kind of similar but probably longer relationship, love-hate relationship perhaps, with scientists. And you can identify periods, you know, of sort of purely progressive uh, histories of science and sort of very uh, a Whiggish kind of thing. And, th and that's possibly similar to some of the maybe a macro picture of the early environmental history, you know, the decline, the idea of, mm -hmm. of environmental failure, and that links to environmentalists and activists maybe supporting that. And then you get to a period where there may be more reflection and critical assessment. Um, and that may be where you get these mixed reviews and kind of say, well, that doesn't fit in with our movement anymore. Can you? And, and you know, right. history of science has, has lots of this of kind of, you know, you get social turns with things, you get things becoming much more contextualised within their culture. And... Um, you know, it muddies the water, like like David said. I think really, there it kind of uh, it kind of makes that less distinct. But I also kind of take what Jess is saying that I think a lot of the humanities and a lot of disciplines kind of put this objectivity on a bit of a stool because they see sort of real science over the other side being all objective, without really understanding that that itself is cultural and influenced. And you know, the people doing that those experiments in a lab are still influenced by everything in their day-to-day -day life. And as long as an environmental historian doesn't hide mm -hmm. where where that angle is or where that that emotion is, then I think that's okay as long as it's all above, you know, as long as it's not like hidden that they were funded by a certain organization <laughs> to do the research. You know, as long as that's there in the introduction that says, I came at it from this point of view, I don't see that as a big problem per se. But you do raise an interesting point where historical scholarship that engages with a contemporary environmental issue of some kind could potentially reveal evidence that from a political perspective um, would support opposition to environmental advocacy as David suggested Wrigley's work um, uh, might make a case for nuclear energy and just as Cronin in the 90s wanted to problematize the idea of wilderness Wilderness advocates felt threatened by this because though from an academic perspective we might agree with his argument, from a political perspective it could give leverage to someone who would argue that a wilderness area should be turned into a shopping mall. But there's no strength in hiding your head in the sand. You have to know about all sides of this issue in order to advocate for one particular chosen side. That I think if it creates discussion that's a positive thing, isn't it? It creates discussion, it creates debate, and... It just brings more information. We're great researchers, historians. We have a, a social <laughs> function um, and a political function, and that maybe it's it's good that we make that known. Mm -hmm. I'm, but I'm always not... be aware that we could also be a threat to environmental groups because of that <laughs> research. Sorry, David. I'm also not sure it's a problem. Like when you bring up like the way Wrigley, uh, I'm thinking when I refer to Wrigley being used. Yeah. In, as an argument for nuclear power, uh, George Monbiot was called in the Guardian after mm -hmm. Fukushima that con uh, took the Wrigley book. I think a, a lot of us, uh, and a lot of I mean, the more anti-nuclear advocates were shocked at, at that one. But if we were to look at it objectively, it it's a much more complicated discussion. Should Britain use nuclear power? Uh, should probably the same discussion. Should Canada put more nuclear in the grid instead of some of the alternatives? 
For power. Or for Canada, should Canada build the new transcontinental pipelines? Mm. Right. And, and but these are, if they're complicated questions, having a fair bit of evidence that takes you against simplistic answers and then even forces people to have to think, is there a complicated answer that works with a whole bunch of our multiple objectives, is probably a good thing. But sometimes, I mean, one thing that's interesting is sometimes how the immediacy of online kind of news, online comment sections and discussion sections kind of affects that. Like I think of a couple of cases of, uh, not necessarily just environmental historians even, like uh, people working on, on climate, for example, uh, you know, cultural mm-hmm. aspects of climate change, humanitarian <clears throat> aspects of climate change, whether historical or contemporary, who are coming with a more complicated story. They're not coming up and saying, everyone needs to stop what they're doing now and change their actions, otherwise catastrophic climate change. You know, they're coming up with something a bit more detailed and complex, and both, both sides of that argument in the public domain will, will latch onto it. And I, I know one or two academics who've kind of found themselves on debates or websites that you know, so-and-so is at this university and he says climate change isn't real. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of read that and I've had a couple where I've had to email people and sort of say, do, do you know that you're on this comment section? Because I'm pretty sure you never said that. Right. But, but, but because it is a complicated argument maybe, um, but sometimes people will take one tagline from something mm-hmm. you say. So I guess is if you're getting into those waters, if you're aware you are, then... Fair enough. I mean, the, pe- the people in those instances, sure. they were quite used to that territory. But we might agree that introducing complexity and nuance to an environmental problem helps us understand it better. But if you're a political activist trying to affect change, complexity and nuance can actually disrupt your movement or your effort to see that change become a reality. No. <laughs> I mean, you have to know all sides in order to argue yours and if you just yeah. are narrow minded you're, you're yelling against a wall and the wall is not going to respond but if you say you know I understand this is a complex issue and there are this many jobs at stake or this, this uh, trade agreement is very important to the country however you mm-hmm. know that you can, you can show that you are a reasonable human being, that you weighed the issue, both sides, all 18 sides or however many, and then you are coming at it from this for these mm-hmm. particular reasons. But an issue there, sorry, uh, an issue there, though, of course, is that sometimes you're up against a debater who perhaps isn't as reasonable about the facts as you. Right? <laughs> so you might say, That's I see. Ideal world yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love it. I wish. Yeah. I thought it sounds great. I want to live there. Yeah. But I just wonder a little bit, like, if, you, if you're having a debate, like, I see your point, and there's, like, you know, let's take the, the tar sands as just an example, you know, like, yeah, there's tons mm-hmm. of economic benefits, undeniable. I mean, my brother works around that area, and he gets spin off, and there's, there's undeniable benefits and all that, but it's just, sometimes, like, if you're doing that sharp political messaging that pervades so much mm-hmm. now, and you, you, you start your argument with, like, two minutes of caveats, yeah. then you're going to get, you know, the person on the comment board picking up on, like, the... Yeah. I'm not sure if the comment board person is necessarily the person we should be aiming at anyway, but... Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but uh, anyway, but, yeah, you'll just get these people, they'll pick up, like, the first minute of that, like, well, this person obviously doesn't know really what their stand is, because they spent, like, two minutes on these caveats, which I think in an academic setting, of course, are helpful and necessary and useful. It's just sometimes politically, I mean, if you get... The more caveats you add, the, the less it seems to... And they don't fit into a 30-second commercial on TV, right? We may also be putting a lot of the role of agency where we have, where historians may have a role in advocacy in the wrong place in some of this, Mm. that we may be putting, 
more emphasis on what happens in the public domain, what the advocacy groups do, in sort of some ways in which we're often liable to spend a lot of time, historians, celebrating mass protest movements as opposed to the role of policy analysts. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of the places where environmental historians may be the most useful is giving specific policy recommendations. Like in policy development as opposed to mm-hmm. political advocacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, in, in Britain, they're, they're <coughs> quite a bit more developed, the environmental historians in Canada, at actually having the contacts directly to the higher levels of government mm-hmm. in which when quest- history and policy has done a very good job there uh, and brings in mm-hmm. some of the, mm-hmm. the better environmental historians to give immediate advice based upon the current state of research to the senior civil service. Things that where nuance and balancing issues are, import, are important and respected, but in, in which there may be more influence than t- TV clips or large protests. Okay, so then I, I want to throw a new question into the mix then for you guys to think about. Um, what is the value of historical analysis to contemporary environmental concerns? And... Thinking about your own work, do you see your own research addressing environmental advocacy issues in the present? Why does history matter? Does your history matter? (laughs) Well, I think uh, what I was thinking about, uh, as everyone else was discussing bits of the last question, this answers your your question a little bit here, too, is this, uh, you know, all of our work scholarly work has, has a conclusion. You know, we, we have a takeaway at the end. We have mm-hmm. a message to deliver. And I think the, the usefulness for, for, his, for the historical work as it relates to contemporary issues is whether, we're not, whether or not we, we see uh, progress or decline in terms of are things getting better or are things getting worse? Uh, what do we see as the change over time, the general trends? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we may be looking at a period... And what caused that a long time ago? And what caused those changes? I mean, even if we're looking at a period that was 100 years ago, like David and I, uh, there are still implications for that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historians allow allow, uh, uh, the public to think about the long term, the changes that happen over a longer period. And then it helps current uh, people who are thinking about issues in the contemporary setting to think about beyond just the next year or two, beyond the next four-year political term, beyond just the the policy implications, and to actually think about uh, the lifespan of a human or the lifespan of several generations, and to think about the sort of the connections that take place over a longer period. Mm. Are things getting better or are things getting worse? I guess the other thing you can do if you're doing a study that's further into the past is use past human actors as a kind of historical experiment to understand how humans in the past have related to nature with potential for understanding how people in the future or the present might relate to nature as well. It's also the case that most of the current environmental questions that are there fundamentally have a time dimension. I mean, climate change may be one of them, uh, whether we're running out of yes, energy, really yeah. uh, whether agriculture stops being productive. I mean, each one of these are questions with a time dimension, mm-hmm. and the historians tend to be better in discussing time than other disciplines. So we have, And all of the studies all of us have done involve change over time. And this is really interesting, right? Like, I think at, at one point I started thinking, are all contemporary environmental issues that are the subject of environmental advocacy historical problems? Right, whether it's climate change, pollution in a lake, um, to some degree, environmental problems have legacies, have precursors. It's a it's a question of time. 
I, I see like a couple of things recently in some of my research that I guess one useful thing, especially when we're talking those policy kind of areas, is kind of a, a, a we've been here before, or, or not mm-hmm. necessarily this case can be taken to today, and we can see that. But for example, at the moment, um, there's a new flood and water bill protractedly going through Parliament in the UK. There's a lot of flooding, obviously, in the UK at the moment. Um, so a lot of discussion has been sort of looking historically and um, looking back to f- the development of water policy and flood policy in the UK. And obviously, certain events keep coming up and keep getting mentioned on the radio and television news coverage, and they keep mentioning the, the largest floods in 1953. And I heard something on, on BBC Radio just the other week, last week even, and, and basically I've heard this same sort of fact stated about three or four times in the recent weeks. In 1953, there was a really bad flood. The simple pitch. There was a really bad flood, mm-hmm. but it made us realise how vulnerable we, we were. So we did a lot about it, and then we built the Thames flood barrier to protect London. And even in more detailed cases, they've mentioned Herman Bondy doing his review and report. No one mentions the dates. The flood happened in 1953. Herman Bondy did his review in 1966. The Thames barrier starts construction in the 1970s. So when people are then saying, well, "What does this mean for our future? Where do our flood defences go from here?" We've got rising sea levels, we've got more extreme weather hitting our coasts. And then they say, well, it's all right. They're the policy advocates kind of saying, we've been here before and we survived, we came through it, we, we had a, a t- an engineering solution. But there's no real historical detail there of time frames, of mm-hmm. what worked and what didn't, which avenues were explored first and didn't work. And I think environmental historian can really bring some more sort of detail to those kind of pictures. So we have been here before, but as well as it maybe being a success, as you may say, from today, mm-hmm. there were avenues that didn't work and things that slowed it down. And even going back to this idea of complexity, I do understand that it can be somewhat sounding, somewhat detrimental to environmental advocacy, single-minded, this is bad, yes. But I think we do have the luxury as historians to make things a bit more complex. I know in my work on asbestos, the mm-hmm. Canadian asbestos industry, you know, asbestos is obviously a terrible industry. It needs to stop. It Globally, it needs to stop. Canada should not have been mining it and selling it for as long as it had. But ironically, you've both been called an advocate against the industry and an advocate for the industry. Yeah, I've been labeled both pro and <laughs> anti-asbestos. Um, and I think the reason I was labeled pro-asbestos is because while I, you know, my research is, is devoted to detailing disease rates and contamination, environmental and human, um, I say the asbestos industry should stop, but there are people here. Mm-hmm. There's a community here. You can't just say, community's closed, go mm-hmm. and live other lives. Sorry about your community, cultural identity, not to mention your jobs. Um, it's more complicated. And when these industries are closed, what policies are put in place to retrain or relocate um, those communities who are left in the wake mm-hmm. of these toxic um, environmental resource industries. And so that has gotten me in some trouble in the past um, to add complexity to what is a black and white situation. Um, but I, I do feel as though my work does illuminate an important aspect of that issue. My work, uh, I work on tobacco farming sort of around the early 20th century. And something I think that my work hopefully contributes is the discussion of limits, of agricultural limits, and the confrontation of limits, the overcoming of limits, and the inability to completely overcome limits. When we're talking about 
you know, agricultural development or any number of environmental projects. It's always like, here's a problem, and lo and behold, some developments happen, some technological changes, chemical fertilizers, whatever, and the problem is overcome, and lo and behold, we're in a new era. And I think a historian adds a lot more texture to that that narrative of constant progress and overcoming of issues and blah, blah, blah. Because, I mean, yes, while things develop and get better, things also, unexpected consequences come into play all the time, too. So, yeah, you play a lot more fertilizer and your crops are growing more extensively, but, oh, my goodness, all of a sudden now you have the like, cutworm outbreaks. And the cutworm outbreaks destroy all of your crops. And they see constant, this constant give and take that sort of disrupts the, the, the message, the, the, the very popular message, I think, sometimes, that like, technology can just overcome anything all the time, and eventually just technology will win the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in some cases it does. I mean, I think it's important to say, like, yeah, and there have been huge technological revolutions in agriculture and anywhere else that have been massively important, but I think from my studies, I've seen tons of times where people will say, oh, here's a new technology, and this is great, and then it actually ends up solving very little, and I think that that's an important message that we can lend to people. Don't be so confident about your solutions. Yeah, they don't yeah. always work. <laughs> it's also interesting, and one thing I sometimes realize is that North America, it feels environmental history in North America is very focused on developments after 1870. Uh, there's some work done on earlier developments uh, in Britain and Europe, environmental history often deals with fairly with earlier periods of time as well as the that post eighteen seventy era. But that sometimes that perspective that the good medieval environmental historians and nearly modern environmental mm-hmm. historians bring by bringing us into a different world, into a world mm-hmm. in which the environmental relationships weren't just the ones that immediately lead to the one we're in, but sometimes fundamentally different, gives us a perspective on a lot of current issues that aren't necessarily the the most immediate obvious, we can say you must do this in, in this town, but mm-hmm. can help with, with a, more, a more complete understanding that does things that are different than the, the, rec- than the immediate recommendations in asbestos. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, something I agree with to some extent that environmental advocacy certainly has influenced environmental history scholarship, and one of the consequences of that is in the literature, a sort of whole for the early modern and medieval periods. Um, and uh, and there is still some utility for, from a contemporary perspective for that kind of research, but for a kind of pure history research perspective, it does uh, lead us to not know a lot about the environmental history of um, Acadia in the 17th century or New France um, or even Upper Canada in the early 19th century. Um, those are topics that environmental historians certainly should should research, but are perhaps more difficult to connect to a contemporary environmental issue. But there may be a case as well of, of resu- you know, primary resources as well, but yeah. environmental <laughs> history of any historical discipline should be best placed to kind of breach those kind of issues and look at other, other forms of evidence than mm-hmm. just maybe, you know, nice preserved written yeah. things. And I, I'm very persuaded by the point that David made about environmental issues having at their core to some extent an issue about time um, and being, I think, historical problems. But one thing, and this is really a hypothesis that came up in my own work, um, is the, uh, uh, the, I don't know how to put this, the poor memory that we have for the environment. We do a really good job at commemorating individuals and battles um, and uh, big political events, uh, but environmental Events that nature itself has its own history within human historic time is something that people, I think, struggle with reconstructing the past. And we were talking before we turned on the mics about people's memories about the worst winters. 
uh, and how um, flaky those memories can be, <laughs> uh, and whether or not this winter was even worse than last winter. Um, so I think to some extent environmental historians can help us overcome the limitations of our own human memories, which I think are fallible when it comes to thinking about nature and its immediate historical context. Just last week on the bus on the way to York, two people were talking about how global warming certainly isn't happening because it's so darn cold outside. <laughs> and I almost ripped my head off in frustration. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, think of it in the... Ah! <laughs> I could not articulate it's my too historical hard to, rage. It's too to explain complexity on a short bus ride. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I just silently fumed. <laughs> it may also be hard to explain that Toronto isn't global. <laughs> and, and some of the things going on of, of what have been a relatively... A somewhat colder than average and snowy Toronto winter are connected to changes in the jet stream that are also related to how big the polar ice cap is, and that global a global change has different effects in different places. Yeah. Now, the Toronto, <laughs> Toronto may not be global, but our discussions often are at the Toronto Environmental History Network, and I hope that you enjoyed our conversation today. I think we really just scratched the surface of, of what I think is a pretty important topic for environmental historians, and particularly for graduate students who are setting out uh, writing dissertation prospectuses, thinking about what their projects are going to be, and for those of you around the table today who are writing and revising conclusions where you would might make statements about the relevance of your research to a contemporary environmental issue. Hopefully, this conversation stimulated some ideas for you. And if you're living in the GTHA, we encourage you to get in touch with the Toronto mm -hmm. Environmental History Network. And we'll link to that on the show notes page at niche-canada.org slash nature's past. I want to thank Jonathan, David, Jessica, Alex, and Andrew. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jessica Van Horsen, Alex Hall, David Zibelberg, Andrew Watson, Jonathan McQuarrie, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast where you can download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast, and you can subscribe to our feed on YouTube at youtube.com slash naturespast. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the fall with another episode of Nature's Past. 